Hello, brethren. We at headquarters wish you a joyous and spiritually uplifting Feast of Tabernacles wherever you are observing it this year. Last year, one of my sermons was released for the Feast of Tabernacles viewing. And this sermon was entitled, The Theocratic Kingdom in the Old Testament. It's still available on our website. And in that sermon, I defined what a theocratic government is and how the Hebrew Bible described it in various time periods. A theocracy is defined as a government of the state by the immediate direction of God. It is not merely a religious direction, but a political one as well. God rules through his divinely chosen representatives who speak and act for him in a theocracy. The word theocracy is not biblical in origin, but the idea is one of the main tenets of Scripture itself. And in that first sermon a year ago, I explained that the world of theology has various views about the kingdom of God. But in the Bible, the overarching theme is this kingdom of God. It's described as a universal kingdom in the opening words of creation. Lucifer challenged this authority before even the creation of Adam and Eve. In that sermon, I described that there was a theocracy from the dawn of human history. And after the flood, the theocratic kingdom was under human government. Then it passed into the time period of the patriarchs. Then the judges. Finally, to the monarchs of Israel and Judah. Leading to its unique representation under David and Solomon. Before, during, and after the captivities of the houses of Israel and Judah, the prophets foresaw a new theocracy under a coming son of David. Various prophets up to the end of the Old Testament detailed a restored theocracy over all the earth under this coming son of David. So those are the highlights of the sermon I gave a year ago. That was concentrating on the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Does it nullify these many promises of a coming kingdom of God? Or does it spiritualize them into the church of God? Did Jesus and the apostles teach something very different from these Old Testament prophets? In this sequel sermon, we will see the continuation of this theme of the theocratic kingdom on into our New Testament, where it will appear under the phrase, Kingdom of God. So the title of this sermon is, The Theocratic Kingdom in the New Testament. The Theocratic Kingdom in the New Testament. In the world of theology today, there are three primary views about the kingdom after Jesus' first coming. The liberal view is that Jesus adopted the social and political aspirations of the people of his day, and he announced a kingdom in close conformity to that expected by Israel on the basis of the Old Testament prophecies. 
But during the course of his life, it became apparent that Israel would not receive his offered kingdom, and therefore he abandoned that expectation because of opposition and the subsequent discouragement. So, in this idea, this view, these prophecies are unfulfilled. The spiritualized view is another primary view in theology in that Jesus adopted the spiritual elements of the Old Testament prophets, but he abandoned all the political and national aspects and offered instead a spiritual kingdom set up in the church to all who would believe. The third primary view is the literal view that the kingdom announced by John the Baptist and then later by Jesus, as we will see later, is the same one foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Do you know that the actual phrase, kingdom of God, does not appear in the Old Testament in either the King James or New King James versions? The phrase comes from the intertestamental period, that 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, in a pseudepigraphical work called the Psalms of Solomon. This apparently is the first usage around the first century B.C. And it was a hymn awaiting the Messiah to destroy the lawless Gentiles and unite Israel in righteousness. So by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the phrase kingdom of God was in common usage. And so it relates to the theocracy of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a similar phrase that we will now turn to. In 1st Chronicles 25, sorry, 1st Chronicles 28 and verse 5, 1st Chronicles 28, 5, David is near the end of his life, is giving counsel to Israel and to his successor, his son Solomon. And this is what David says. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon my son to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So it's very similar to kingdom of God, but it, as we see here, kingdom of Yahweh or the Lord, as it is in our English Bibles. So it relates to Israel and to the throne of David, this phrase. It talks about a theocracy. And Solomon was God's representative. In Chronicles, when God uh, has established Solomon in his throne, he talks about my kingdom, that is God's kingdom, being forever through, to be administered through Solomon. Solomon, in that sense, was a type of a coming greater son of David that we now know as Jesus the Messiah. I'm going to recite a list now. Some we will turn to and some I'll just recite for you. But in this list, the Hebrew and Aramaic words have as their primary meaning the ideas of kingship, sovereignty, and kingly rule. So the word kingdom does appear in relationship to God, though even though the phrase kingdom of God does not appear in the Old Testament. For example, in the crucifixion psalm that we now understand uh, describe the death of Christ, Psalm 22, 
we read, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. So the kingdom is the eternals. It's a theocracy. Later in Psalm 45, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Psalm 45 says, They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom, glorious majesty of his kingdom. They say it's an everlasting kingdom and dominion. Psalm 103, The Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Obadiah's prophecy says, The kingdom shall be the Lord's, or the eternal's. Now, when we come to the prophecy of Daniel, we have at least three references to the kingdom. Three different chapters, at least. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, Daniel's inspired to explain to him, In the days of these ten kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And then in Daniel 4, we're told his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And then again in Daniel 7, the kingdom is given to the Son of Man that we know as representing Christ in that prophecy. It's given to him and to his saints. So all these Hebrew and Aramaic words certainly describe a kingdom that is God's, a theocracy, even though the words kingdom of God are not used in exactly that sequence in our Old Testament. So let's move on to our New Testament now. When we come into the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find their messianic expectation, kingdom expectation. It's been well established that some Jews in the time of Christ were anticipating the literal fulfillment of these Old Testament theocratic kingdom prophecies, especially the Pharisees and the Essenes. The Pharisees believed in a last judgment and a coming of Messiah. The Sadducees, by contrast, did not accept a coming Messiah. The Essenes looked for a political Messiah or Messiahs, two Messiahs, one priestly and one Davidic. And they also looked to a coming of the end of the age. But the Zealots took matters into their own hands and they incited revolts against Rome, trying to establish a kingdom on their own. So at least among the Pharisees and the Essenes, there was a Belief in a personal coming of a Messiah, a literal restoration of the throne and the kingdom of David, a personal reign of Messiah on David's throne, the restoration of the glory of Jerusalem and Israel, and the fulfillment of the glorious descriptions uh, by the prophets about that coming reign. They were expecting these things to happen in their lifetime at least some of these people at that time. And they regarded the prophecies and covenanted, covenanted promises as literal. So let's go to the book of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And we will start in verse 5. Luke 1, starting in verse 5. 
This is Luke's account of the birth narrative of Jesus. Luke 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God. They were anticipating the coming kingdom, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And now we go down to Luke 1, starting in verse 32. In this prophecy, an angel comes to Mary and prophesies to her. In Luke 1, verse 32, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. That Mary would give birth to this leader of the new theocracy. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this is plain, simple, literal language. He will judge the twelve tribes of Jacob and do so forever. So this is what they understood. Right from the opening words of our gospel according to Luke when the angel was inspired to tell these people who waited for the coming of the theocracy that Jesus was this promised son of David. Now down to verse 67, Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah 1 verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is after the birth of his son John the Baptist. He has raised up, verse 69, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. You see, the return of a glorified Israelite kingdom. So he's giving praise to God in this prophecy that this is now underway. Now down to verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And you, child, talking about his son John, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And here is a part of the plan of God that now is being revealed that this son of David, that we know as Jesus, would provide remission of sins to cleanse people, to enable them eventually to enter this very kingdom of God. Now in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25, 
Luke 2.25, after the birth of Jesus and after his presentation at the temple, Luke 2.25, we have the stories of Simeon and Anna. Let's read about uh, their accounts. Uh, Luke 2.25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see, that is waiting for the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's a just and devout man. And verse 26, It was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In Hebrew, this could be Mashiach Yahweh, the pre-Christian Jewish title for the coming Messiah. <clears throat> the Messiah <clears throat> excuse me, of the Lord himself. So he had seen the Lord's Christ and he tells God then that he's now ready to die. That promise to him has been fulfilled. So we find then this kingdom expectation among these early believers right at the beginning of our New Testament. Later during Jesus' ministry, the disciples asked Jesus, who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And he goes on to describe about serving that we need to be like little children. And we use this every year in our annual blessing of children ceremony. Then in Matthew 10, the mother of James and John asked Jesus that her son sit at his right and left hands in his kingdom. In Mark chapter 11, the people during the so-called triumphal entry shout, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. As we go on to Luke, one of the people said, this was in the banquet in the home of a Pharisee, which leads up to the parable of the great supper. This person said, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. You see, there was an expectation among all these people. Later in Luke 17, the Pharisees demanded of Jesus when the kingdom of God should come. And then even in Luke 23, when Jesus was crucified, the thief on the cross, as he's commonly called, said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now let's go to Luke 23. We can look at this one together in our Bibles. Luke 23, I'm using the King James Version today. Luke 23, starting in verse 50, about Joseph of Arimathea. Luke 23, starting in verse 50. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. That is, he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was a good man and a just. Verse 51, the same had not consented to the counsel indeed of them, those who condemned Jesus, he was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself, notice, waited for the kingdom of God. So this man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. He boldly goes to associate himself with this Jesus who had just been crucified. But we see here that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now let's go on to the book of Acts, chapter 1 the account of Jesus' ascension. 
Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So Jesus is with his uh, 12 disciples, or 11 disciples as it was then, since Judas Iscariot had uh, hung himself. And they therefore, verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They knew those Old Testament prophecies. And they asked, will it be restored now? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own power or authority. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus revealed to them that before the kingdom was fully established on the earth, they had a job to do, to take the gospel into all the world as a witness and to make disciples. And that work, the Great Commission, continues on to this very day. And when that's finished, then Christ will return and this kingdom will be established permanently for all time. So here we are, the disciples asking, will you at this time restore again the kingdom? Now, let's look at some kingdom aspects that Jesus himself preached. And when he preached about the kingdom, he did not pause to define what he meant to his hearers. None asked him what he meant. He used the term kingdom of God as if assured that they all understood what he meant. And indeed it was. So it was something they understood and they longed for desperately. They were all acquainted with its meaning. So in the works and teaching of Jesus, we find the same aspects of the prophetic kingdom as predicted by the prophets. For example, healing and the cleansing of the infirm physically, the feeding of the hungry Control of nature to prevent disaster as displayed when he calmed the storm. And then Christ fed the multitudes. He healed. He calmed storms. So we see this power that had been given to him that was prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament. When we talk about spiritual aspect of what he preached, he said, in order to enter this kingdom, one must be repentant. And be transformed, as we would say, being born again into the kingdom of God, to enter and see it. He gave ethical principles of the kingdom, fully set forth in the Sermon on the Mount, that is sometimes called by authors the Kingdom Manifesto, the ethical principles of the coming kingdom of God. In the social realm, Jesus described how all social evils will be rid during this time. The world will be set on a path of righteousness. And in religious observance, when he cleansed the temple from the money changers, he said his father's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And politically, in Matthew 25, we see Jesus portrayed prophetically judging the nations while he sits on the throne of his glory. All these were features 
described by the prophets of our Old Testament. <clears throat> so, Jesus then is finally recognized as the prophesied Messiah. <clears throat> Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was moved by the Holy Spirit. And she meets Mary, who is now pregnant with Jesus, and John, as a baby in her womb, leaps. And so, Elizabeth, in the first chapter of Luke, speaks prophetically of the coming of her Lord. She is grateful. She glorifies God that she knows that her Lord, that is her sovereign, is on the way. The sovereign of the throne of David. And Mary, when she is told that she's about to give birth to the Messiah, sings a magnificent hymn, commonly called the Magnificent. And it she makes it clear that she understood her son was God's appointed servant to come to Israel in remembrance of his mercy, his covenant faithfulness, as he had prophesied to the fathers. So these women knew that they were involved in God's program that was about to bring about in time the kingdom of God to the to this earth. We went to that account of Simeon after Jesus' birth there in the temple, waiting for the consolation of Israel, a term describing Messiah's reign. And he knew that Jesus was the means of God's salvation and glory for Israel. And he says, Mine eyes have seen your salvation. Then Anna, who was a prophetess, and others looked we read in Luke chapter 2, excuse me, they look for the redemption of Israel in Jerusalem. And they gave thanks to God for what was to come. Now let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 about the birth of Jesus. This is Jesus' account of the birth narrative. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Roman historians of the first and second century, Tacitus and Suetonius, testify that in the east at this time there was a general expectation of a king to be born in Judea, who was to rule the whole world based on the prophecies of Daniel. And Herod, mentioned in verse 3, had been given his title, King of the Jews in 40 B.C. 40 B.C. Actually, he bought his position from the Romans. Now he hears that a king of the Jews has been born, and so he sees this new birth as a competition. And so he obviously wants to find out, where is this baby? So, verse 3, Herod the king, when he had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born, where the Messiah should be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophets, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least 
among the princes of Judah. For out of you shall come a governor, a ruler, that shall rule my people Israel. And so they're quoting this Old Testament prophecy out of Micah. And so Herod is alarmed. And of course it leads to the death of all the innocents there in Bethlehem. Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus' lineage back to King David, proving he had the legal right to the throne of David. You read that in the rest of Matthew chapter 1. So, Jesus was recognized as the prophesied Messiah. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and read about the preachings of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Jesus calls John a prophet. He says the law and the prophets were until John. And so John is prophesying, and he speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is Matthew's account, which... uh, Matthew writes, apparently, to a Jewish audience, and because of their reluctance to use the name of God, they used a euphemism. Instead of kingdom of God, they prefer kingdom of heaven. And that's the way Matthew records the preachings of uh, John the Baptist here. So he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They understood. And so John baptizes people that they might be forgiven and eventually enter into that kingdom. Then in Matthew 4, during the temptation of Jesus, Satan takes him to a high place and shows him all the the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. And he offers them to Jesus if he would just do one thing, bow down and worship Satan. And Satan is offering him a cheap substitute. The world's governments. And of course, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy and Satan is forced to leave him. Now in Matthew 4, verse 17, let's see what Jesus preached. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message as that of John the Baptist. This is how their ministry opens by preaching about the coming kingdom. Later in the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus tells the 70 that as they go out and preach to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come nigh unto you. That's what they were to proclaim to their audience. So when we read about the kingdom is at hand, It's in the sense of it's approaching rather than arrived. It's coming. It's on its way. But first, men must respond with repentance and faith. Christ not only announces it, but he helps men enter into that relationship with God that the coming kingdom demands called discipleship. Jesus provides the sacrifice to atone for sins so that people can be made right with God again and enter into the kingdom in time. So the kingdom was offered in the person of the king. He's the king of the kingdom. 
preaching here at this time. He's the rightful king and he's present. But now the nation was called upon to repent and receive Christ's offer of forgiveness that they might enter into that kingdom. Then in Luke 10, Jesus tells his disciples, Many prophets and kings have desired to see and to hear the things which you see and hear, but they did not see nor hear them, that is, realized in their lifetimes. But these disciples did. They saw the power of the kingdom being expressed through the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus. Now let's go to Matthew 10, starting in verse 5. Matthew 10, starting in verse 5. The mission of the twelve. Matthew 10, 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not in the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not. Verse 6. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message. The twelve disciples are sent to preach this same message, and in this case, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he tells the twelve to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand as well, because Israel indeed was his covenant people. Later in the same book of Matthew, in chapter 15, he says, He was not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this proclamation went first to the people of Israel. Then, later in Jesus' ministry, and certainly during the time of the apostles, it was expanded to include the Gentiles as well. Now let's go to Romans chapter 15. Here the apostle Paul makes a statement that connects these prophecies back to the Old Testament and Jesus' mission. Romans 15, starting in verse 8. Romans 15, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. That is, he was a servant to those who were of the circumcision. For the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. He had come to fulfill these very promises that were laid out in multiple books of our Old Testament. In verse 9, And that the Gentiles, or the nations, might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So He had come to confirm these very promises. Now, what does confirm mean? It means to support or establish the certainty or validity of, to make valid or binding by a formal or legal act. So, Jesus' first coming was the next step in the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. Because His first coming provided the means by which people can be forgiven, have their sins washed away, to be on a right relationship with God again. Now, let's go back and look at the ministry of Jesus and show that the miracles that he worked confirmed his message. That the kingdom of God is at hand. 
These sign miracles or works of power that Christ performed were evidence that the power that would reside in the coming theocratic kingdom and king were manifestations of the blessings that would exist in the kingdom. Isaiah 35 it talked about how during the kingdom people would be healed. And so Jesus' miracles were typical of that age yet to come. And Paul in his first Corinthian epistle says the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. A Greek word dunamis meaning force, might, strength. Jesus exercised power when he healed these people. So let's go to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. In this section which he talks about a house divided cannot stand, we find this, Matthew 12, verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, or a demon, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And they said, Is not this the son of David? The prophesied son of David? Of this theocracy? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, Satan himself. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? 27. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils or demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Because he was its representative. And he's exercising the power of the kingdom by casting out devils. Now the Pharisees practiced exorcism according to Josephus. But Jesus' exorcisms were, were, were much more effective. He cast out these evil spirits by the power of God. So his casting out demons was anticipating and foreshadowing of the coming kingdom itself. These miracles were assurances that the kingdom will come as it is predicted. So in his ministry, he raised the dead back to mortal life. Typical of the resurrection of the dead and his coming, second coming, and even again after the millennium. He healed the sick. Type of healing and cleansing of all the infirm when the kingdom finally will be established. He fed the hungry. Type of the great <clears throat> wedding feast, messianic banquet to inaugurate the millennium. And then he controlled the weather, stilling the storm, type of the meteorolo meteorological and geographical changes to be made to the earth when the kingdom rules. So all these miracles were in anticipation of what it will be like to, be, to live in this coming kingdom. These depict the conditions which will exist in the theocratic kingdom when it's established. Now I'm going to turn to our New Testament and recite 
a list of verses which use the word kingdom. The Greek word is basileia. And for this entire list, which I'll recite some to which we will turn, basileia, the primary meaning of this word, like that of its Hebrew and Aramaic counterparts, is kingship, exercise of royal authority, reign, rule, and by extension, it may also refer to realm or a territory governed by a king. So it denotes sovereignty, requiring the actual presence of a sovereign. Royal dominion. So let's start in the Gospels. The term kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven occur very frequently in the first three Gospels, called the synoptics. In fact, Christ spoke more about the kingdom than the church. The phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven and its equivalent expressions occur about 80 times in our New Testament. The word church occurs only three times in the Gospels. Three times. And all of them are in Matthew. That's a surprise to many people when they discover this. Matthew preferred to use the term kingdom of heaven in keeping with his Jewish audience, which was not comfortable in frequently using God's name. So a euphemism for the word God was the word heaven. So here are some of the many passages mentioning the theocratic kingdom. And I've not listed the uh, many other similar passages listing synonymous words. When we start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23... Matthew 4, verse 23, we read this. Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of what? The gospel of the kingdom. Healing all manner of sickness, all manner of disease among the people. See, typical of the coming kingdom of God. So he preached the gospel of the kingdom. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, sometimes called the Kingdom Manifesto, one of the things he taught us to pray from this outline daily is, Thy kingdom come. And so daily when we pray that, we're anticipating the establishment of God's theocracy on this earth after Jesus' second coming. Later in that Sermon on the Mount, he says, Seek you first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Then in Matthew 13, he gives a series of parables. This is the first of about 14 parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. So he was asked, why do you preach in parables? And he said, because it is given unto you, you disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but not unto them, to his opponents. So the parables are all about the kingdom in this set of at least about 14. Then in Matthew 16, during the transfiguration, Jesus said, Some will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And He was transfigured before His three apostles. That prefigured the coming kingdom of God. Then in Matthew 19, 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus preached. Let's go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. Matthew 21, 23. And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests, the elders of the people, Matthew 21, 23, the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? So that's the audience. Verse 31, in the parable of the sons, Jesus says this, Whether of them twain about the two sons, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans, the tax collectors, and the harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you. Because these people will respond in repentance and faith. So that's in the parable of the sons. Now in verse 43, in the parable of the householder, also sometimes called the parable of the wicked husbandmen, we read this, verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. This nation of believers, people who will repent, turn to God and form a a nation in a sense of people to whom that kingdom and authority will be granted. When we come into the Olivet Prophecy, a well-known verse to all of us, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness and then shall the end come. That's the Great Commission. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what I'm doing by listing all this is showing you how frequent this theme is in our New Testament. Let's move on to Mark. In the opening chapter of Mark, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. See, repentance and faith are required of those who will enter into that kingdom. You cannot just go in because you claim to be a descendant of Abraham. Let's go on to Luke. And we'll turn to this one. Luke chapter 4. In verse 43. Luke 4, 43. He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. At the time, he's in Capernaum. And he says, I must go on to other cities because I was sent to preach this kingdom of God message. And so he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Let's go on to Luke. Chapter 12, starting in verse 29. Luke 12. 29. Seek you not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be you of a doubtful mind. Luke 12. And now verse 30. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of them. Verse 31. But rather seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you 
the kingdom. So, this body of believers begins very small. It was very small in Jesus' day. And the church grew throughout these 2,000 years, many times larger than it was among Jesus' original uh, followers. And to these people that even today form a little flock will be given God's kingdom. Now when we come to the book of John, John does not speak of the kingdom as often as the synoptics. But he does say something very important. In John 3, he records that Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except he be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Talking about this transformation, <clears throat> this repentant attitude and faithful attitude that in time leads to a birth into God's very family, the kingdom of God. And then later in John, Jesus on trial before Pilate said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Let's move on to the book of Acts now. Acts chapter 1. Dr. Luke has written us this account of the early stages of the church of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And he says this, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until a day in which he was taken up, after he was through the Holy Spirit, had given the commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive, after his passion, that is, his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and notice, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What did Jesus preach to his disciples after his resurrection? The kingdom of God. Same message, same theme, as we go on into the age of the apostles the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and taking the gospel to the world. So as you go through the book of Acts, you find Philip preached the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. Then in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, who say, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. This is after Paul's stoning. We must, through much tribulation, enter that kingdom. Then in Acts 19, for three months and then for a later stay of two years, Paul preached the kingdom of God at Ephesus. We see the apostles doing the same thing that John the Baptist did and Jesus did. It was the same message. Then in Acts uh, Acts 20, Paul preached the kingdom of God to the elders of Ephesus. And he gave them the whole counsel of God. So even when he calls the elders to come and meet with him, he is reestablishing this central core message, the kingdom of God. Now look how the book of Acts ends. Acts 28. Acts 28, starting in verse 23. Acts 28, 23. The Apostle Paul is in Rome under house arrest, awaiting for his uh, account of time to present his case before Caesar. 
And so in Acts 28, 23, when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified what? The kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till night till evening. That's what Paul preached. 24. Some believed the things spoken. Some believed not. That's the case yet today, isn't it? And now verse 31. The last verse of the book of Acts. This is how it ends. Verse 30. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. Received all that came to him. But what did he preach? Verse 31. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That's what he did for two years. And that message even reaches to the family of Caesar. He tells us in his epistles later. Some believed, others did not. All right, let's move on to Paul's epistles. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul writes that God is not through with Israel. That the prophecies that God had given to his people were yet to come to pass. Then in Romans 14, Paul writes, The kingdom is not meat and drink, food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Only through moral obedience can a nation claim to be under the rule and protection of its God in a theocracy. It's not solely about food and drink, nor political power, physical, material things, but it's more importantly about godly virtues. It involves a new relationship with God through Christ. As we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul here lists ten classes of people who will not inherit the kingdom. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate homosexuals, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, Paul says, of the Corinthian brethren. They were like that at one time. But now you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's how powerful the sacrifice of Christ is for us. Cleanses us of evils even like these ten. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, Christ, it is prophesied at the end of time, will transfer the kingdom to the Father. And he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So does Paul. Paul writes, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So the redeemed must be transformed. But eventually, at the end of time itself, Christ will deliver back this kingdom to his Father. In Galatians, Paul lists those who will not inherit the kingdom of God again. 
He calls these the works of the flesh. Works of the flesh. And then in Ephesians, he describes those who have no inheritance in the kingdom. So, Paul described powerfully in his epistles that there are certain things people must do. We cannot play church. We cannot pretend to be Christians. We must be genuine Christians and live these ethical, moral, spiritual values in order to enter that kingdom. And then in Colossians, Paul says, we are delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And he describes his fellow workers in the kingdom. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 Paul says, And as you know how we exhorted and we comforted and we charged every one of you as a father does to his children, that you walk would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. To enter that kingdom, you must walk worthy. So he says, Please, brethren, I appeal to you as a father. Walk worthy of God. You've been called to this kingdom and glory, so walk appropriately. This is the highest calling of all. So during our Feast of Tabernacles, let's think about how well we are walking Worthy of God to enter that kingdom, to prepare for that time when we will rise to meet Christ in the air and actually enter it. Now, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Second Thessalonians 1, 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it's meet, because that your faith grows exceedingly. And the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Which, he says, is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Counted worthy. There's suffering involved at this present time. So let's think about that deeply. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God. Verse 1. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the quick, the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. He will judge when that kingdom is reestablished on this earth. And so, verse 18, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's last epistle. These are his parting words before his execution. And he anticipates entering the heavenly kingdom that is the kingdom of heaven possessed by heaven in a future age. Then in Hebrews, Paul writes, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Christ's kingdom. Thy throne is forever and ever. 
Hebrews chapter 12 now. Let's turn there. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Wherefore, Paul writes, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The Christian's assurance of the kingdom cannot be shaken. So, let's serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now, let's go into the general epistles. James, in his second chapter, says that Christ's people are the poor of the world, though rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom. He talks about a royal law that we must abide by. The royal law, law of a king. Now, Second Peter chapter 1. Let's go to Peter's second epistle, Second Peter 1, starting in verse 10. Second Peter 1, 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail or fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Same theme, right on through the general epistles. And now our last book, the book of Revelation. It opens in chapter 1 with the Apostle John who writes to his brethren from the Isle of Patmos in exile, saying he was their companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience or perseverance of Jesus Christ. He was their companion in the tribulation and kingdom. Chapter 11, he describes the seventh trumpet, which during that trumpet is announced, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God speed that glorious day. Now let's go to Revelation 12, verse 10. Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our Lord, our God. The power was Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. And they overcame him by the power, the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. So, here again, now has come salvation, strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ when Satan is cast down. So, we've gone through the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and we see this overarching theme of the theocratic kingdom. But what about today in God's church? Would he leave his church without government? Well, we see there indeed is theocracy in the church because Christ rules in his church. In Acts chapter 15, the apostles gathered together to discuss how Gentiles should enter the church. Do they first have to become Jews through bodily circumcision before they can become Christians? The Pharisaic element of the church insisted that should be. So the apostles gathered together in Jerusalem. 
A decision is made, which is announced by James, that that would not be required of the Gentiles. And a letter is written by the apostles that is taken by men like Paul to and his Silas and Timothy to their churches to explain the decision handed down by the church. So in Acts 16, verse 4, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders, which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. You see, there is authority in the church. Christ rules through his church. He ruled through these apostles and elders. And when that was implemented throughout the churches of God, verse 5, the churches were established in the faith. And they increased in number daily. It brought order and harmony and direction for the work of the church from then on. So, doctrine was established. Number one, as Christ rules in this church, doctrine is established by Him. What about behavior and discipline? In John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst. And he said to them, Peace be unto you. John 20, and now verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive you the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted to them. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. In other words, judgment is given to the leadership of Christ's church to decide on disciplined matters, to determine proper behavior, and to discipline those who are not abiding by Christ's principles. That has been established in Christ's church as well. And so that authority has been given to the ministry of this binding and loosing for sins remitted or sins retained. So that's number two. And then number three, administration. Christ rules, he administers through his church today. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 7. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Excuse me. So he says, Paul writes, Remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end, the outcome of their conduct. Remember them. Have respect for them. Those who have the rule over you, who lead you, follow their example. They bear an authority that Christ has given them. Verse 17 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. So obey them. You see, administration in the church. And our last verse for this sermon, verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you. 
and all the saints, they of Italy salute you. So he is saying to greet, to cooperate with those who have the rule over us. There is administration in the church of God. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say that the church of God is the kingdom of God in embryo. It's just beginning here, ever so small. That will eventually lead to that kingdom, <clears throat> in a sense, being born around the entire earth. So as we've seen in two sermons, the kingdom of God, also called the theocratic kingdom, is the overarching theme of the Holy Bible. <clears throat> it is the controlling force of God's purpose for mankind. This Feast of Tabernacles typifies the time when the government, that government, will be restored to this earth in all of its glory under the reigning Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the King. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say, the whole thing is government. And now we know why. 